Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week is someone who's worn many hats in his long-running and incredibly successful career. Recording artist, producer, manager, and even as the head of A&R for the Beatles label Apple Records. Peter Asher started his career as one half of the popular British duo Peter and Gordon, who scored seven top 20 hits in America between 1964 and 1968, including the number one smash A World Without Love, written by Peter's sister Jane's then-boyfriend, Paul McCartney. Brought on by Paul and the other Beatles to head up A&R for Apple Records, Peter's first signing was a young American songwriter named James Taylor. Peter would go on to manage and produce 10 of James's albums, beginning in 1970, with the classic Sweet Baby James. He later did the same for Linda Ronstadt, managing and producing all of her classic albums. Some of the other legendary artists that Peter has managed or produced include Joni Mitchell, Carole King, Randy Newman, Diana Ross, Neil Diamond, Robin Williams, Steve Martin, and 10,000 Maniacs. Peter has won three Grammy Awards, including twice for Producer of the Year, and in 2015 was appointed Commander of the British Empire for his contributions to the arts. Birds sing out of tune And rain clouds high at the moon I'm okay, here I'll stay With my loneliness I don't care what they say I won't stay in a world without love So I wait and in a while I will see my true love smile She may come, I know not when Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. My guest today is someone I am thrilled to be sitting next to, just because it's thrilling to sit next to anybody these days after two years of not <laughs> sitting next to anybody. But specifically, Peter Asher is our guest today, a longtime friend of mine and someone whose career I've admired from afar for a long time, and thrilled to have you here. Welcome, Peter Asher. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So I think a good place to start is just to talk about some of the accolades that you've received in your life, because the more that I study the history of contemporary music, which is basically going back, you know, to the mid-50s, early 60s, it's amazing how often you pop up, you know? <laughs> and I don't know if it's like Forrest Gump-like. Somebody made that comparison. Yes. I'm, I'm very flattered by that comparison. But, yeah, I'd like to think so. But, you know... All of a sudden, you realize, oh, that record, yeah, Peter did that. That record, Peter sang that. That record, you know, Peter was managed that. It's like mm -hmm. unbelievable. But some of the accolades, you received a CBE, Commander of the Order of the British Empire, in 2015. You've won three Grammy Awards. You've been nominated for a lot more. Uh, you've been nominated for Producer of the Year four times. You won in 77. You won in 89. You won a Grammy in 2002 for your work with Robin Williams. Productions have earned 37 gold, 22 platinum, 14 Grammy Awards. You've really had the most fascinating 
career, which is still going strong. I love the fact that it started very, very early. A lot of people who may know you through your music contributions may not know that that's not where it started for you. It started, you were a child actor. I was. I was a child actor. I have two sisters, uh, my sister Jane and Claire, each two years younger. And we all got signed up at a very young age. I think, I'd like to think it was our superb acting ability, but actually it was our red hair. I think it was the three children sort of graded in height, all with bright red hair. And some agent said, oh, you know. Did they cast you together? In the end, we never did anything, all three of us together. But I think that was the the thinking, the look. I'm sure the agent was envisaging, you know, highly paid commercials of three children eating jello or whatever it was. (laughs) But I I did several episodes of the old Robin Hood series with Richard Green, the black and white one. And which is a whole interesting topic on its own, by the way. I didn't know it was all done by blacklisted Hollywood. Oh people. wow! A lot of those, some of those shows were written by some of those amazing writers who couldn't get work in America. Interesting. Anyway, the only thing we all did together, I did several episodes of Robin Hood as Prince Arthur. Right. But then we came back and did one together as a pair of peasant children. You and Jane. Me and Jane, right. whose father had been wrongfully charged by the sheriff, and we went to Robin for help. There you go. So, but you, that's the only thing we ever did together. Did you enjoy acting? I did, very much. Yeah, I still do. I mean, I I haven't scrounged myself an acting part for, for some years, but I think the last one was the thing I did for my friend Bob Balaban, and that was probably four years ago, five, probably more. But no, if, if offered the chance, I still accept acting engagements with pleasure. But it's not like acting was in your family. Your parents were professionals, right? Yeah, my mom was a professional musician. She was oboe professor at the Royal Academy and, and gave oboe lessons on the side and played in a number of the major orchestras. I spent apparently first year or so of my life often on the road because right. that was when my mom was out. The orchestras were all going out. I, I read she had troops. a very famous student. She did. Yes, it's really funny. It's just one of those strange coincidences. She gave private lessons as well as teaching at the academy. And there was a student at the Guildhall, a rival school of music. And at the Guildhall, you have to take a second instrument. He was studying arranging and composition and piano. And his second instrument with the oboe, he was worried that his oboe playing wasn't up to scratch and he might not pass his exams. He looked for an independent teacher and chose my mother, who was Margaret Elliott. She taught mm-hmm. under her maiden name. And his name was George Martin. Mm-hmm. And so strangely... By the time my mum later met George when he was my mother's daughter's boyfriend's record producer, mm-hmm. um, it was like, oh, yes, George, <laughs> how are you? And she taught him as a child. That's crazy. Yeah, it That's is Absolutely weird. crazy. That is. So did you, did you consciously say, okay, I'm going to stop acting and, mm. you know, pick up, pick up a guitar? No. I went to a fancy school, a posh school called Westminster School in London, which was hard. I do remember there were opportunities that came up that I couldn't take. So, because, you know, Westminster was not the kind of school that lets you off for a week to, to go and shoot an episode of something <laughs> or other. So, but I think probably I was just one of those, as in many cases, child actors who didn't really make the transition to adult right. actor. Whereas my sister Jane took it seriously, right. quit school at 16, and became a very successful actor then and now. Right. Um, at what point did the acting kind of give way to music? Well, while I was at school, I mean, I was already a music lover. I'd grown up in a classical music environment, and I'd played various instruments, never practiced properly, and never became competent on any of them. Unfortunately, never learned to read music properly. But I did get a guitar around the time I went to Westminster and learned a few chords. Well, it was the same with everybody. We were all crazy for American music, you know. And I was crazy about 
jazz, though I couldn't play it. I wasn't nearly good enough, but I mean, I had a huge bebop record collection mm -hmm. and crazy about folk music. I knew every Woody Guthrie song by heart and those wow. songs I could actually play because they're all three chord right. songs. And then, you know, when we discovered rock and roll and rhythm and blues, that was it. I still think people underestimate the extent to which it's all about how much we fell in love with America and American music, right, you know, right. because even the Beatles, until they started writing their own songs, which it turns out they did quite right. well. They were covering said, American R&B But records. until yeah. then, they never sang a British song. Right. Very Not one. You know? Very interesting. So there's a famous story of how you're playing guitar and you're carrying around a guitar case and there was another student carrying around his guitar case yep. and you noticed each other. You want yes. to talk about how you met Gordon? He, he was a fellow pupil at Westminster and he was in the same house. I used to find nobody knew what a house was in, in the school sense, but now, of course, thanks to Harry Potter, <laughs> they all do. We were in the same house and it wasn't Slytherin. And... Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, we started talking just because we both had guitars and he knew a few more chords than I did. And we, taught, you know, showed each other some songs. I was a bit more the folky and he was a little more the rocker, right. as you can tell by looking at Gordon. He's right. sort of, he's a would-be Elvis and a good would-be Elvis too. So we started singing together and interestingly found that our voices kind of blended, right. which is unusual only in the sense that most duos... Their voices are quite similar. I mean, you can tell who's Don and who's Phil, right. but not instantly, right. you know. Whereas in Gordon and me case, Gordon was this big, rich, proper baritone mm -hmm. voice, and I was this sort of weedy, white, schoolboy right. choir voice, right. but it, somehow it fit. And so, when you started, so, we, so we liked it. Right. When you started singing together, mm. what was the, the repertoire? What was the material? I think one of the first songs we learned was one that became a staple of our repertoire. It was 500 Miles, the old folk song. Mm -hmm. We worked on an arrangement of that, and it ended up being... To a considerable extent, I think, the song that got us a record deal. Wow. That when, when we got signed, the guy who signed us mentioned that song in particular. But we also were doing all kinds of stuff. We did Jimmy Reed songs and all the stuff everyone else was doing. Right. We were R&B fans as much as everyone else was. But they were definitely sort of white, non-soulful versions. But, <laughs> but we sounded pretty good. And were you playing around town? As a duo? Yes. We, it's funny because what happens, first of all, is you find yourself getting invited to parties and eventually invited to parties by people you don't know. Mm -hmm. you know and they'll say, come to my party on Saturday. Be, oh, by the way, bring your guitars. Mm -hmm. And you suddenly realize you got booked for a free gig. Got so, it. so we started doing that. And then eventually, just by walking into places and saying, do you ever have music? And, you know, we went coffee bars and stuff. We would get ourselves a gig. We had a pub we could do at lunchtime. Paid us, I remember distinctly, a pound each and a pint of beer, which was a good deal. And <laughs> we would do there at lunchtime. And then we ended up getting this gig at a place called the Pickwick Club in, in London, which was a bit more upmarket. It was a place, a lot of cool actors. I mm -hmm. met Terence Stamp for the first time, Michael wow. Caine for the first time, all when they were young, handsome mm -hmm. heartthrobs. That was sort of the best gig we had of that whole string. And again, no PA, just sitting on a couple of bar stools, acoustic guitars, folk style. So you named yourselves Peter and Gordon? Oddly enough, no. One fact you may not have discovered, tell or maybe the, you did. Tell me the story. We called ourselves Gordon and Peter. <laughs> um, because Gordon was the lead singer, he was the tall, handsome right. guy. It seemed logical. So it wasn't until we got signed that the record company said, oh, you know, marketing or somebody has decided that Peter and Gordon sounds better. We're going to change your name. And who was I to complain? It wasn't a devious plot on your behalf? No, I didn't engineer that at all. <laughs> it was genuine. 
somebody in somebody in marketing or somewhere. And to be honest, it's very hard to tell now because one sounds right and one doesn't. But Peter and Gordon does sound better, I think. I think. Well, it definitely does it, now. It definitely sure. does now. Maybe <laughs> maybe that's it. Yeah. So that's how I ended up with with first billing. There you go. Around that time, your sister Jane, who you mentioned, starts dating a new boyfriend. Yes, she was invited in the role of sort of celebrity reviewer to go and see the Beatles. I think it was their first ever show in London. They weren't headlining. It was like a Melody Maker Awards show or something like that. Everyone did a short set. And the Radio Times, which is a bit like TV Guide, mm-hmm. you know, articles on shows, they had asked her to go and see the Beatles and write about what all the fuss was about. And she went, she thought the music was great, as much as you could tell over the screaming. Right. And... She was taken backstage afterwards as the sort of celebrity reviewer visitor to meet them all. She liked them very much. They they all liked her, and one of them liked her in particular and asked her out. So, so yes. then Paul McCartney, who you're talking about, ends yep. up moving into your house? Yes. Yes. It does seem a bit odd looking back on it. But, <laughs> no, but, no, what happened was, you know, the Beatles had a flat that all four of them shared. It was in... Uh, Green Street in Mayfair. And of course, it was chaos for young, successful guys, you know, sharing a small, relatively small four-bedroom flat. You know, I was only there once, but it was lunacy. And I think Paul, in addition to being crazy about my sister, justifiably so, also just liked that our household, it was a lot more organized. My mother was an extraordinary woman and ran things, you know, and my father was a very busy doctor, so there was an awful lot going on, a lot of scheduling involved. Anyway, so he would, like a boyfriend does, he would come to dinner a lot to our house. He, he would bring my mum his laundry to do and stuff like that. And, <laughs> and eventually, yes, my parents offered him the guest room on the top floor of the house as a sort of pied-à-terre when, when they weren't on the road. And so he moved in and stayed with us for about two years. And the top floor was my bedroom and, and the guest room. Right. So he was in your house, but you two were basically roommates because you shared the top floor of the house. We were in, Yes, we were in the joining rooms. We shared a bathroom, but we didn't share a bedroom. And I read that John sometimes would come over. There was a piano in the basement. Yes. And that the two of them would write at the house. And once they called up to you to hear a brand new song that they had just They written. did. There's quite a lot Paul wrote in the house, quite often on guitars, which were up in his bedroom, and where she had, by this time, we were sort of borrowing each other's guitars and stuff. And my mother had told him when he moved in that there was a little basement practice room, tiny, a little upright piano, two-person sofa, and a single wooden music stand. And that if you wanted to use the piano, that was when he could use it all the time because she didn't really give private lessons of the kind she'd given to George Martin a couple of years earlier much anymore. She was very busy at the, at the academy in her role as professor. So he could use it whenever he wanted. And there was that one day shortly after he'd moved in, quite near the beginning, that John came over. And they went downstairs for a couple of hours, I think. Interestingly, no guitars, as I say, just the piano. And uh, Paul called up and asked if I wanted to hear the song they had just finished and... I came down and sat on this little sofa and they sat side by side on the piano and hammered out, I want to hold your hand for the first time to anybody anywhere.
So you were the first person to ever hear, apart from Paul and John, I Want to Hold Your Hand? Yes. What'd you think? I thought it was very good. <laughs> no, that would have been awkward. It's, it's, no, it's true. No, it's, they said, what do you think? I said, it's amazing, it's amazing. And, and the dead giveaway, of course, is that I immediately asked them to play it again. Right. And that's what counts. That's the sign of a hit. And equally, they were thrilled to play it again. So they knew. Wow. They knew. And I didn't realize until, you know, doing a little homework, getting ready to talk to you today, that there were a lot of really famous Beatles songs that Paul wrote for Jane. Yes. So I've read and so I, <laughs> so I imagine it's true. It's not something I've ever asked. You know, I don't think it's ever been. Well, what a, I've read but, is that most famously, And I Love Her and We Can Work It Out were potentially written by Paul for Jane. And if they weren't, it's still a great story. I think All My Loving as well. <laughs> That's a great uh, When song. he was going to leave me on the road. But yes, I, I believe that to be true. So then something fascinating happens. Fascinating in that, think about kind of like destiny of the universe, that yeah. you are living on the top floor of your house with your, you know, flatmate. Right, the most important songwriter in the this history of And he lived there for <laughs> three weird. years in, yes. in the middle of Beatlemania. It must have been chaos. It was quite chaotic, yes. Yeah, my father, who was interested in it, because, you know, he, my father was a quite eccentric and a completely brilliant physician. More on him later. But he worked out a way for Paul to actually get out of the house without, because there would be an accumulation of fans outside the front door. And, so it wasn't a secret that he lived there? Well, it... it no, but how much and how... They knew he was there sometimes, right. but they didn't realize he was actually living there all the right. time. And it was odd, of course, because my father saw patients in that same building. There, in other words, in Wimpole Street and Harley Street, mm-hmm. as if you probably know in London, is where all the senior doctors right. are. And they are consulting rooms as well as residences. So th- some of the patients must have been indeed puzzled if they arrived to find, you know, a dozen... So your father actually figured but out an escape hatch? He, went, he figured out a way to get across the roof and down through a neighbor's house and out the back. Very nice. So that Paul could get out without being seen. So if Paul is writing, you know, sometimes on his own, sometimes with John, <clears throat> songs for the Beatles in your home... Yes. John is not going to think everything that Paul is presenting to him is a Beatles song. So famously, he presents a song to John. John does not hear it for the Beatles. You and Gordon get a record deal. You need material. Yes. And do you just ask him? Yes, exactly so. I mean, I wasn't in on the earlier discussions about the song, of course, but Paul explained it to me retroactively because I'd heard him play World Without Love and liked it. And he'd explained to me that it was an unfinished song that he'd abandoned because John didn't like it. John thought the opening line, please lock me away, was a ridiculous beginning of a song. And indeed, apparently, I have now found out, he used to say to Paul, okay, I will lock you away, the song's over. And so it was an unfinished, abandoned song. And when we got offered a record deal by Norman Newell of EMI Records, He'd already chosen some songs, including the aforementioned 500 Miles, that he knew he wanted us to cut. We were just getting one day at EMI Studios, Mm -hmm. as it was called then, to do four or five songs in the hopes of getting a single. And I think at the time, Norman was leaning in the folky direction. I think we were going to be, you know, Britain's answer to the Kingston Trio or whatever. But he said, if you know any other good songs, bring them on. And, and that's when I said, well, maybe I do. And yes, I think I asked Paul, I believe just the next night, he came back from a gig and I said, whatever happened with that World Without Love song? Did you finish it? Did you give it to anybody else? And the answer was no on all counts. So I said, well, could we do it? And he said, yes. And he made a little demo for me on my reel-to-reel tape machine out of my room. 
and also wrote out the lyrics on a piece of paper. That but I, there wasn't a bridge. There wasn't a bridge. There was lyrics for two verses, and obviously there's melody for, for the verse. So I did have to sort of nag him to, a bit to write the bridge. And the, how long did it take him to write the bridge? Less than 10 minutes. <laughs> um, and, and when I say that, people laugh. You know, the audience always laughs if I say that in my show. And they think I'm joking, but no, he, he just went in his bedroom with his guitar and came out, you know, the, so I wait and in a while I will see my true love smile. That part of the song, which is only 15 seconds right. long. And I say, and he kind of went with this too, and I went, yes. So <laughs> what did, what did Norman Newell bridge. think when you showed him the song? He was thrilled. He thought it was great. Birds sing out of tune And rain clouds high at the moon I'm okay, here I'll stay With my loneliness what do you remember? And yes, we were all excited that it was a Beatles song because it was becoming clear right, right. that that was a big deal. Right. No. And, and what do you remember about that recording session? I remember, first of all, hearing ourselves back was thrilling because it never happened. I mean, there wasn't, you know, hearing yourself professionally recorded then was a big difference. Now that it's been professional and in someone's house is negligible <laughs> in many cases. What the records we love are actually right. being done in people's right. houses. But then just hearing it on a proper mic in a proper studio was like, whoa. I also discovered that I wanted to be a record producer that very day. Wow. I, mean, I knew that once I figured out what producers can do that you can use your imagination and come up with arrangement ideas and right. concepts for the song. Hire musicians much better than yourself and tell them what to do. You know, it's fantastic. <laughs> great gig. It's a great gig. One thing I learned that I didn't know before today is that the guitar player who played on A World Without Love... Vic Flick. ...who is most famous for As something else. Dun 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 the guitar player on the, the James Bond player in James Bond, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, so a world and he's still around. Amazing. A World Without Love goes to number one... Yeah. ...all over the world. Yeah. Gets you, you were just talking about your fascination with America, it gets you to America as a 20-year-old. Yes. It's now, according to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, A World Without Love is one of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. But you've said that your greatest ambition at the time was to get to America, and yes. that got you to America. Yes. I mean, it was the same, by the way, for the Beatles a few months earlier. The I Want to Hold Your Hands number one phone call, the biggest piece of news for them was now they can't stop us. We're going to America. Right. I mean, I had posters of the New York skyline on my wall. I had copies of Downbeat with all the jazz clubs I was going to go to, circled. You know, I, I knew where they all were. Who made it to the ready. States first? Oh, they did. But not by much. Not by much, but months, I suppose, yes. And what we then encountered, a miniaturized version of Beatlemania. Right. What was interesting is when Beatlemania happened, and then particularly when, of course, Hard Day's Night came out, it was like an instruction manual right. of how you act right. with all these new right. British acts. So they would all go crazy and scream, and it was amazing. It was super exciting. I mean, I was thrilled to be in New York, thrilled to be walking around, and then to be walking around New York, and in addition, chased by screaming teenage girls. Life doesn't get much crazy. better than that. Do you remember the first time that you heard A World Without Love on American radio? 
Yes, and not very specifically, but I think it was when we picked up at the airport for the first time in a Cadillac limo, which to us was unbelievably <laughs> cool and fancy. I mean, it was the biggest, longest car we'd ever seen in our lives. And then, yes, on the radio, on one of those great old Cadillac booming AM radios. It's coming out of that Well, with our love came out of it. And this people may not realize that while all this is happening, you're not even 21 years old. You're 20 years old. That's true. 20, yeah. So you and Gordon end up having eight top 20 singles in the U.S. Arguably, the second most famous after A World Without Love is I Go to Pieces. Do you want to talk about meeting Del Shannon on tour? Yes. We were very excited, of course. One of the advantages of package tours for the Beatles and for us, actually, was that you get to meet many of your idols. As you probably know, the Beatles opened for Little Richard and people like that, and it was great. We were on a tour of Australia and the rest of the bill was The Searchers, mm-hmm. the British band, and Del Shannon. Mm-hmm. We were huge fans. I mean, still to this day, yeah. Runaway is one of the great right. pop singles ever. And Del was a really nice guy and a great singer. And he'd written this song, I Go to Pieces, that apparently he'd offered to a couple of acts in America before he left. Right. Didn't get a bite. On the road in Australia, he was trying to sell it to The Searchers. He kept saying, oh, you, you should do this song. And to be honest, I think they could have done a great version. I love Searchers with all their jangly electric mm-hmm. trial strings. would have been cool. But they turned it down. And I'd heard them turning it down. And so, you know, gritting my teeth, knowing full well we were not by any means his first choice, <laughs> I said to, to Dell, could we ever go? And he said, yes. When I see her coming down the street I get so shaky and I feel so weak I tell my eyes look the other way But they don't seem to hear a word I say And I go to pieces and I wanna hide Go to pieces and I almost die every time My baby passes by so you're having a pretty good batting average asking other writers to record those songs, please. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We have a history of picking up people's leftovers here. And very high-quality leftovers. What else do you remember about those years? Because you guys started mm-hmm. in 64. Peter and Gordon broke up in 68. What are some memories of, of those four or five years together? Fun. You know, it was, it was chaos, but it was so much fun. I mean, we were having the time of our lives in so many respects, as you can imagine. Yeah, I remember we were excited about America. I mean, there's so many memories come to mind. I mean, when we went to Memphis, we were the ones going, Memphis, we have, can we go to Stax Records? And, and the Capitol people going, no, no, we don't know. We don't know them. And, you know, it's like we don't go to that part of town. And we were going, you know, could you please call Stax for us? And eventually they did. And we went and spent the day with Jim Stewart wow. at Sax Studios wow. listening to these tracks they'd cut. And we met all the... Steve meet? Cropper's still a right. friend, but I met right. all of them. Rufus Thomas was there recording that day. I mean, we were just in heaven. It was great, you know. And then there were the girls, too. It was, in every respect, it was right. a thoroughly satisfying period of time. I mean, amazing for a young kid, you know, going from a uh, red-headed child actor yeah. to, you know, a big pop star with hits all over the world. It was extraordinary, yes. So why did you guys break up? Did you just come to the end well, of the Well, we didn't exactly break up. We never actually said, this is our last gig, or I'm not speaking to you again, or have a proper Everly Brothers-style <laughs> row. row, you know. But Gordon wanted to do other things. He'd always wanted to make his own records, and I did develop a desire to be a record producer. So we just started doing less, and eventually we drifted into this sort of hiatus but we never said we're not going to do any more for sure 
But the hiatus lasted, as you know, for 37 years. So <laughs> I guess I assumed as the decades went by that we weren't going to, to do anything else together. But then we did, you know, because of a gig here in New York. Right. Well, it was great that you guys got to perform again before he passed away. It was, and it was Paul Schaefer we have to thank for that. Mm-hmm. You know, He was putting together a benefit for his friend Mike Smith of the Dave Clark Five. Yes. And he said, look, you know, it was actually Kathy, his wife, who's great, who said, if you could get Peter and Gordon back together, that would make it an event, you know. And so he called me up, and I went, if we're ever going to do it, this is the one to do. Paul Schaefer's going to put the band together, right. so that's no worry, you know, that's taken care of. What was that phone call like to Gordon? He was very happy. He said, great, you'd love to. But there was some issues with Gordon, namely that he was, you know, he was a terrible alcoholic. And so you'd have to check on his current right. status and could he actually do a gig? Because he, he did have his history of being sober enough for the sound check and too drunk to do the right. show on several occasions. But that, that worked out that night. That night worked greatly. He totally behaved himself, sang brilliantly. I mean, Gordon, even when he got really ill, what was interesting was that his voice remained intact. Mm. You know, he had this big, rich voice. Wow. That, was great. So we enjoyed it and people liked it. So we kind of went, oh, well, look, if there's any other gigs in the offing that might be fun, we'll do them. And we did. Wow. And as you say, he died a couple of years later. So yeah, it was a good thing was we did. Nice that you were able yeah, to. Yeah, it was do great. It. it was great. So tell us about the transition from being in front of the curtain to being behind the curtain as you get an, a gig to be the head of A&R yeah. at a new label a run new... by your friends, the Beatles, called Apple Records. Yes. Yeah, it was great. I mean, Paul began by telling me all about his plans for Apple. You know, even though it was a collective Beatles venture, he was the main instigator. And it all sounded great. You know, this is going to be a record company that respected artists in a way that people forget how how formal record companies were back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember EMI, you know, the boss was Sir Joseph Lockwood, and mm-hmm. he was a very stern schoolmaster-looking man, and when you were in his office, you felt like you should bow. Whereas only a few years later, record companies were vying with each other to be artist-friendly, right. you know. And so Apple, in a way, was way ahead of its time. So Paul had this idea, and he asked me if I'd produce some records for it. He'd already knew that I was producing stuff because he'd actually played on the first record I ever produced. Which um, was? Which was Paul Jones. If you remember Paul Jones uh, from the Manfred Mann, mm-hmm. lead singer, great singer, incredibly good harmonica player, still is to this day mm-hmm. my, my favorite harmonica player. We did a song called And the Sun Will Shine, BG song. I thought it should be a hit, and I still do, actually. It sounds pretty good. <laughs> uh, and I wanted to take no chances putting a band together. So I got Nicky Hopkins on piano, mm-hmm. who I'm sure you know, and... Paul Samuel Smith, my friend, was a close friend of mine, played the bass in the Yardbirds, went on to be a very successful producer himself, did Cat Stevens and Carly Simon. He agreed to play bass, and he agreed to ask his pal in, in the Yardbirds, Jeff Beck, to come play guitar. So I had Jeff Beck on guitar, and I asked Paul if we'd play the drums. Pretty good band. Which he did. It was a very good band. And the sun record so paul was aware of my production ambitions and what i was up to and so on so and then he said well look why don't you just be head of a and r for the label and oh okay that's cool thank you and how long after that did you discover an american singer songwriter who you brought in it was a series of coincidences because i don't remember exactly it was a 
months, I suppose. I don't know. Because we were dealing with all these submissions we got from the public, which we promised to listen to, which were awful, unfortunately. We didn't get it. Tell anything. me about it, Peter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but when, then people got sensible and we said, we're not going to be like those labels that say, you know, no unsolicited, right. you know, we'll, we'll listen to everything. It was just awful. I mean, a lot of it was, you know, you forget you're going to get 50 pages of lyrics from someone who knows John Lennon wants to write right. music for all yes. of them and they don't even scan. Of course. But anyway, the James thing happened in a roundabout way because one of our tours in America, Peter, we were given bands on the road. Peter and Gordon. Peter and Gordon. Right. When we were on the road, the agent or someone would hire a band for us. And they weren't good musicians. They'd be like some cheap local band. Right. You know. But in one case, it was this band called the King Bees. We liked them. In particular, I liked the guitar player, Danny Korchman, who became a great friend and remains a great friend. And after the King Bees, he was in a band called the Flying Machine with his childhood friend, James Taylor. The Flying Machine broke up in New York, and James decided to go to London. And Cooch said to him, oh, I have a friend in London, you know, we correspond all the time. Um, he's okay, you should give him a call, and gave James my phone number. So he called me up out of the blue and said, I'm a friend of Cooch's. It actually turns out I had met him once before, because I'd been to a Flying Machine rehearsal, which I don't remember meeting the individual band members, but evidently James was there. Mm -hmm. He remembers I don't. So he came and said, you know, I'm Cooch's friend. I went, great come on in, and he played me these songs, and I went crazy. And so what was the process like? If you're the head of A&R, but the Beatles own the label, yeah. do you have to present things that you want to sign to all four of them? No. I had the right. I'd said, can I sign people? You know, and they said, yes. But, of course, if four major musicians own the label, not getting a couple of them on your side would be foolish. So officially, you know, could I have signed him anyway? Yes. Did I think that getting Paul and George on the side would be a very good idea, yes. And did they share my extremely high opinion of James? Yes. Got it. I mean, we still have the memo I wrote to Neil Aspinall and Ron Cass, who was the guy we'd had to run the label, mm -hmm. he used to be at Liberty, and was married to Joan Collins, which was what clinched it for us. <laughs> we went, how cool is that? And I wrote it sentencing, and the first line of it says, James Taylor is the new singer and songwriter who is extremely good. The rest of it doesn't matter. <laughs> That's what... That's what I wrote in my memo to them, saying why we were signing it. And nobody questioned it. Nobody questioned it. James has a great quote about you, oh. about the first time that he met you. He says, so this is James Taylor on Peter Asher. I knew from the first time that we met that he was the right person to steer my career. He had this determination in his eye that I had never seen in oh. anybody before. Wow. I don't think I don't even know that quote. That's great. Yes, I was determined because I was convinced. I was certain. I mean, I bet my career in his and moved to America, which, you know, wasn't that big a bet at the time. Well, you loved America. You wanted to come back. I loved America. I wanted to come here anyway. And it's not like I had wives and children or obligations, you know, so I just said, okay, so, let's So go. in moving to America, do you need to leave your job as head of A&R at Apple Records? Yes, but it all happened at once. I was leaving anyway. I left because of Alan Klein. I wrote a letter of resignation. I knew about Alan Klein from friends in New York who dealt with the, some of the Stones issues. So I resigned. And Alan was, of course, going to fire everybody anyway. Right. But James and I left before that. And then you and James come back to America. You need to get him a new record deal because he's out of his obligation to Apple Records. Well, he wasn't really. I mean, that was the interesting thing, that I didn't really know what was going to happen. And 
Alan Klein did a Playboy interview in which he said that he had sued us each for like $10 million back when $10 million was a lot of money. Meaning and you and James. James, me and James. And that wasn't true. We got some kind of piece of paper, but <laughs> <laughs> we got something, and we threw it away. But nothing happened. And to their credit, when I did make the Warner Brothers deal, I said, you've got to indemnify us again because right. we don't want any scary lawsuits. And they did completely, which, again, would be a bigger deal now. But I said, if that happens, you've got to deal with that, you know, not me. So that was all bluff and, they, and, they and no bite. Well, but I've also heard... Derek Taylor, I think, in his book says that George told him that he went to Al and said, don't. Right. So between the generosity and ethical responsibility of the Beatles, if they did indeed, Paul or George said, don't sue them. Right. That's not what we're about. Well, well maybe that's a good example of being an artist-friendly label owner. Yes, it's extremely good example. And I thank God for it. What made you go to Warner Brothers? The ads. <laughs> the ads. The Stan, Somewhere Stan Cornyn is Stan smiling. Stan Cornyn yes. yes, absolutely. We thought they were so brilliant. Joni Mitchell is 99% Mich- virgin. Yes. That's right, exactly. And mm-hmm. she was furious. <laughs> but yes, and Eric Anderson, not just a pretty face, and he hated it, actually. But, R- but, Randy Newman, once you get used to it, his voice is really something. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. They were brilliant. We thought that I thought those were the best. For anyone who hasn't read Stan Cornyn's book exploding about his years at Warner Brothers, it's required reading. It'll put a big smile on your face. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, so that's why we chose Warner Brothers. <laughs> because, you see, Mo at that time was reprise. Right. So that's why initially it was, it was all Joe Smith. Right. But, of course, I met Mo and loved Mo and became that whole Warner age. Well, must have had a lot of fun with Joe Smith, the raconteur that he, yes. he was oh, yes. as well. Yeah. Absolutely. And what about Lenny Warnicker? And, and then I met Lenny and Russ and all those And Russ Teitelman, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So the records that you produced for James during this period of just hit after hit, you know, the album Sweet Baby James and Mudslide Slim and the Blue Horizon, later JT and Flag, the songs are just mind-blowing because yeah. the A&R process to an A&R person is very interesting to me because James is a songwriter. Mm-hmm. So he would, I assume, bring you these songs, audition them for you before mm-hmm. you went in to produce them. Yes. Were they all great? Did you say, nah, that one is not as good as you think it is? Maybe this one? Or what I was that process I don't think I ever like? did. I mean, I may have. Or it may be even more specific. Like, is, is Well, I would love to call out some song titles yeah. and give me your recollection of either hearing them for the first time or what it was like producing them in the studio with James and the musicians that you hired for the sessions. So obviously, you have to start with Fire and Rain. Right. Well, I loved that song the minute I heard it, of course. I didn't know the whole story behind it. James told me later, but it clearly was a, a sad song. But I thought it was spectacular. I didn't know if I thought it was a hit because it didn't necessarily have the ingredients of what was then a hit single, you know. But I thought everyone was going to like it, which I guess is what makes things it. So as the musicians go on that album, on Sweet Baby James, of course, I'd put the band together with some care because the Apple album, in retrospect, did seem a bit overproduced to me. I decorated the shit out of it with string quartets and brass and stuff, mainly because, and I remember very much at the time, it was all about me not wanting people to go, oh, it's just another long-haired folky with a guitar. Right. I wanted to say, this is, no, these are Did these you make the Apple record in London? Yes. So it was a different pool of musicians? Trident. Too. Oh, yes. We put a band together. We took an ad in the Melody Maker right. and auditioned people and did it. And then I used my friend Richard Houston, who is a jazz trumpet player and guitar player and a classical composer, to do the arrangements. But once you got to L.A., there's a whole studio world out there. There is, but we didn't really use them. Because we knew we wanted Cooch to play on it, because mm-hmm. we both loved this playing. I found Russ Kunkel, 
who'd never done a session before. You're kidding. No. For those who don't know, Russ, one of the most famous session drummers of all time. He had been to the studio because he'd done some tracks with a band he was in. David Crosby had something to do with it. Mm-hmm. Maybe he produced it or something. But I heard him at a John Stewart rehearsal. You remember John Stewart? The yeah, from the Kingston Trio. Kingston Trio, mm-hmm. exactly. He wrote one of the Monkey's hits. Really nice guy, great guy. And unfortunately, I stole his drummer because he wrote Daydream Believer. I he wrote Daydream Believer. Yeah. And you stole his drummer, Russ Conk. Unfortunately, yes, because <laughs> I, I went to a rehearsal of his live band, and Russ was playing beautifully and playing these fills that derived more from Ringo than from Hal Blaine. I mean, he was a new generation of thoughtful, composed fills. And I loved it on the spot. I asked him if he'd come and play on this one week. We only thought it was going to take a week, and it did, of sessions. So guitar and drums were done, and Carol had had this idea because I'd always been a huge Carol King fan. Going back to, you know, Gordon and I used to do Crying in the Rain. Sure. Of course, we did all the Everly Brothers catalog, all the songs she wrote, you know, Willie Should Love Me Tomorrow, when she was 18 and stuff. So uh, by then I'd heard the Screen Gems demos of those songs before the Drifters or whoever mm-hmm. recorded them. And I loved her piano playing and her singing. So when I got to L.A., Cooch, it turned out, knew Carol. They'd been in a band together called The City. And he introduced me to Carol. I did a bit of fan groveling first mm-hmm. and then said, look, I know you're you know, have ambitions to make your own record, which is going to be great. But in the meantime, would you consider just being a studio guy and, and playing on this album we're going to do? And that's when she said, I don't know, but I'd ride it over to the house to meet James, who was staying with me. And, and she came over and met him, and they sat down together, and it worked. So was she playing piano on You've Got a Friend? Uh, no, on Sweet Baby James. Right. On the whole album, yes. Got it. Yeah, You've Got a Friend story slightly different. Yeah. Got it. And we'll, hopefully we'll have time to get yeah, to that. Yeah, because there is no piano on You've Got a Friend. Oh, I, I didn't realize it's, that. It's basically Cooch and James playing got two it. acoustics. So when you talk about Russ on, on drums, did you introduce him to Lee Sklar? Because I always think of those two guys as two peas in a I pod. know, and because of that, people often think Lee Sklar played on Sweet Baby James, but he didn't. But he played on some James albums. Yes, later. we found him after we cut that record. Got it. I used three different bass players on Sweet Baby James. John London, who's a sort of country guy I met through Chris Darrow, Randy Meisner, and then on Fire and Rain, it's a guy called Bobby West okay. playing upright bass. Oh, nice. Because we decided, it was James's idea, not mine, but he wanted to use a, a bowed bass. Wow. People think it's a cello, but it's not. It's a, it's just a bass. So there is no electric bass on it. Interesting. So it's mm, just right. Thursday morning and all those big, long notes, which I then doubled so that he got, all, got a little bit flangy and mm-hmm. weird sounding, which was great. And what happened was we said, we really want a proper double bass on this. And it was someone at the studio at Sunset Sound who said, oh, you want to get Bobby West? And I went, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, Bobby Wild Wild West. Mm-hmm. We went, yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so he arrives with his bass case. On it is written, Bobby Wild Wild, Wild, West. Wild West. And we went, this is so cool. Perfect. Brilliant bass player. And so he played on the Fire and Rain. Oh, I've seen fire and I've seen rain. I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end. I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend. But I always thought that I'd see you, baby, one more time again. Thought I'd see you one more time again. So we found Lee afterwards, by the way. Got it. He played on the next record. And then Lee and Russ became... Uh, a unit. Yeah. 
Exactly. You know, and hundreds and hundreds of albums later, that's, you can hear... We rehearsed in my house section. with Russ and Cooch and Carol mm-hmm. every day and then went in the evening wow. and cut the tracks. So some other songs. I have to call out You've Got a Friend. Tell right. the story. Okay, well, I'm trying to think how to make it not terribly long, but make it make it all make sense. <laughs> when Sweet Baby James came out, we owed them one more Troubadour show. You remember Doug Weston famously had options. Yes. We'd played the Troubadour before, but always James by himself. So I decided, now that the record was a hit, we was always going to be a big deal week, that we would do it with the band from the album if we could. So I asked everybody who'd played on the record, Cooch and so on, if they'd play the week at the Jupiter. They all said yes. By this time, James had actually heard Lee Sklar. He had a band called Wolfgang he was in, managed by Bill Graham. They'd named the, the band Bill <laughs> Wolfgang to turn curry favour. And they all said yes. So... On the first day of that week of shows, we did our sound check, and James had had an idea. He'd said to Carol, look, because you're planning to have a solo career anyway, why don't you do a little opening act, little opening slot to my show? Do 20 minutes, half an hour, whatever. Just sing some of those songs, and suddenly people will realize that this little girl playing piano in the band wrote all these, all these songs. They'll go crazy, and they did. So... Carol agreed to do that. It was a way to get her feet wet in terms of performing, which she'd never done. So on opening night, we did our sound check and then left the stage for Carol to do her sound check alone at the piano. And James and I went up to the little balcony thing in the troubadour and sat in the front row. And Carol decided, for the sake of her sound check, to run through a song she had just finished writing the night before. And that's when we first heard You've Got a Friend. Oh, my goodness. And James and I looked at each other and kind of went, shit, you know. What was that? And James loved it so much, he asked Carol to teach it to him, which she did. And so then by the time a week or so went by, I think it fell to me, as I remember, to say to Carol, look, James has fallen in love with that song of yours. I know you're going to put it on your album. He'd be crazy not to, but, you know, would you consider letting us record it? Because James's version is a bit different, and it's sounding pretty cool. And he's put all these little James sus chords in there. And, and she said, no, no, it'd be great. You wow. should do it. You know, wow. act of unthinkable generosity. Right. You know, the kind of thing a record company would normally frown well, on. Uh, the kind of thing, song, <laughs> the kind of thing a songwriter who's also a performer now would probably never do. Exactly. Yeah. And then... Carol didn't play on our version, but almost simultaneously, two weeks apart, I think, Carol was at A&M being produced by Lou Adler mm-hmm. doing her version with some of the same musicians. Right. For Tapestry. For Tapestry. Right. And we were at Crystal Sound on Vine Street. She was on La Brea. Our version produced by me, which was mostly just, as I say, acoustic guitars, congas and stuff. And I think I played cabasa as I <laughs> And... Uh, and I remember Carol coming over to listen to it and crying when she wow. heard it. You just call up my name And you know wherever I am I'll come running Oh yeah, babe To see you again Winter, spring, summer, or fall all you got to do is call And I'll be there, yeah, yeah, yeah You've got a friend Well, there's a great bookend to the Carol King, James Taylor, Doug West, and Troubadour story. In 2007, you reunited the band. And 
famously recorded live at the Troubadour, which was released in 2010. The album debuted at number four on the album chart. It went gold. And a great quote that goes along with the success of that album, which is a testament to you, this album gives James Taylor a top 10 album in every decade since the 1970s. So 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000, and then 2010, thanks to you. And Carole King, her first top 10 album since 1976. Wow. So that's a really great bookend to that story. And then keeping it all in the family with James, I didn't realize that for a while you also managed Kate Taylor, James's sister. At the beginning, yes, I did, yes, yes. And that when she left the music business, she said, well, I don't want to do this anymore, but I have a friend who's a singer, and I think you should meet, and maybe you can work together. Yes, almost. Not exactly. I had met Linda Ronstadt before. Someone had told me, I was in New York, and someone said, you've got to go down to the bitter end and see this girl singer. She's amazingly great, best singer you've ever heard, looks fabulous, all that stuff. And I did, and it was true. And at that point, I met uh, Linda and John Boylan, and we had talked about working together. But you're absolutely right that then I didn't, partly because I was already managing Kate and thought that these were too too parallel. But then when Kate decided to retire from show business for a while, she did indeed graciously call Linda and go, you should call Peter again. So is the relationship between you and James, you're not only his record producer, but you're also his manager. Yes. And with Linda, you become her record producer and her manager. Yes. What is that like wearing all these hats? Convenient. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it means the producer and manager don't get into any arguments. It, It didn't seem in any way unnatural to me. It seemed to make sense. The functions are quite different, but I don't think that there should be any conflict, really. But did you have a big team around you, management-wise? I had some good people working for me, yes. Because if you're in the studio making records, yes. someone needs to be managing Absolutely. the day-to-day careers, yes. right? No, I had day-to-day people, yeah. So the first album that you worked on with Linda was Don't Cry Now in 1973 with John Boylan and J.D. Souther. Yes. And that album famously included Desperado. Desperado Why don't you Linda, unlike James, is not really known as a songwriter. So that would lead to her recording hit after hit of covers. Was that your idea, her idea, or both? Both. One of her great virtues, her skills, is as a song chooser and, and songwriter, discoverer. I mean, I wouldn't have heard, I don't think, you know, Warren Zevon or J.D. Souther or so many other great songwriters had Linda not pointed me in their direction, the McGarrigal sisters. Right. Now... In some cases, I would suggest songs as well. But there was a time there when people would assume that I was doing all the song choosing, that there was a bit of Svengali going on. There was, of course, none. Because 
there was an assumption, as you know, it's still probably even true today. If someone sings that well and is that beautiful, they're not also going to be right. incredibly smart and brilliant right. at guiding their own song choices. But Linda is. She's incredible. So she had a lot of those ideas. I had some. And we I just assume any time that I see either Linda Ronstadt or James Taylor record an Everly Brothers song, it's your idea. Very likely. <laughs> and in Linda's case, in Linda's case, you can also specifically think that if it's fast or it's rock and roll, it was almost certainly me. Got it. Because Linda, given her brothers, would sing all slow songs. So she it, loves sad ballads. Yes, and she's so good at it. And she's so good at it. But she can also, I mean, you listen to Back in the USA or something, she sings rock and roll songs, or Tumbling Dice, she sings rock and roll songs so incredibly well, but she doesn't like doing it as much as she likes ballads. The fascinating thing about Linda's recorded career, and I think this is as much a tribute to you as it is to her, is that you guys go on this run of all runs, having hit after hit with covers like You're No Good, the Dee Dee Warwick cover that went to number one in, in 74, When Will I Be Loved, the Everly Brothers cover that we talked about, number two on the Hot 174, Heat Wave from Martha and the Vandellas, Tracks of My Tears from Motown with Smokey. You know, it just keeps going. I have to just keep mentioning these song titles for anyone who wants to go listen. That'll Be the Day, Buddy Holly in 76, Roy Orbison, Blue Bayou, Buddy Holly, It's So Easy. You mentioned Warren Zevon with Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me. But then, and, you know, I've been friends with Billy Steinberg for a long time. One of her first original yes. hits was his very first hit, How Do I Make How It? How Do I Make It? Yeah, yes. 1980. Yeah. Incredible. But then you pivot. And no more pop covers. You do standards. And this was before anyone really was doing covers. It was kind of ballsy. Yeah, absolutely right. It was extremely ballsy, and it was totally Linda. I can't take any credit for it. Now, she said she wanted to do it. She was explaining to me how she thought these songs were being vastly underestimated. As she put it to me, she said, I want to take these songs out of the elevator because you only heard them as music. Elevator music. As yeah. elevator music. And she was determined to do it. But then I threw myself wholeheartedly into helping her doing it. Did I think it was going to be as absurdly successful as it was? No, I didn't. Well, it was so successful you did three of them. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. the fact that you got to work with Nelson Riddle? Yeah. What was that like? It was brilliant. He's hilarious. He was charming, super smart, and, of course, musically unequaled. I mean, he'd bring in these charts and we He'd steal our hearts away. He was a fantastic man. And I don't know if you are aware, the original conversation we had with him, well, first of all, she tried, you know, doing some stuff. She did an earlier version of the Standards album, which was a little bit more jazzy, working with Jerry Wexler, actually. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. And that didn't quite work out. So then we were talking about it further, and she wanted to try again. She said, well, maybe some of them should be orchestrated, you know, and John David was the one who turned Linda originally onto the genius of Nelson. John David as J.D. J.D. Southern. Yeah. He was a huge Nelson fan and knew the arrangements inside out. And he said, well, if you're going to do something with an orchestra, he should do the arrangements. But I was still thinking in terms of traditional, the way we use arrangers, which is you're doing a whole album, but you hire an arranger to write an arrangement for that track and that track or whatever. But in this case, we specifically said to Nelson, well, we'd like you to do a couple of arrangements for this upcoming album. We haven't quite picked which songs yet. And basically sort of said no. And it's realized, and it took a minute, we were kind of vastly disappointed until we realized what he was saying is, I don't do that. I don't do tracks. Mm -hmm. I'll do an album. Right. We went, oh. Great. Okay, great. <laughs> because Amazing. if you think about it, it is always an album of Nelson Riddle doing Ella Sings, whatever. Right, of course. And we went, okay, great, fantastic. You can do the whole thing. And he went, good. 
And well, in hindsight, those records are now iconic. You know, all yeah. three of them went platinum. Mm-hmm. Then in 1987, you guys pivot again. Yep. The Canciones de Mi Padre, easy for me to say, yep. album, you know, it stands as the biggest selling non-English language album in American record history. That amazes me that's still true, but apparently it is. Yes. And is that her concept or your concept Hers. or both? Hers. And people would kind of go, well, when are you going to get back to rock and roll or whatever? Why are you taking these different directions? And, of course, she pointed out this was a reversion, not a, a new experiment. Canciones de mi padre were quite literally the songs she had learned on right. her father's lap. Right. And uh, her father, was Gilbert, was a beautiful singer and sang all these same songs, many of which are on the album. Well, in 2021, that album was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. It just points to her brilliance, where you follow a true artist, the audience follows that artist, and especially when the artist goes somewhere you're not expecting. Exactly. Yes, she was completely right. It was fun doing that record, and I learned a lot. I co-did it with Ruben Fuentes, who is the genius of that kind of music, and who did some of the arrangements, and he was great. After that, Cry Like a Rainstorm, Howl Like the Wind, with multiple tracks duetting with the incomparable Aaron Neville, that sold three. Three million copies. So, I mean, it's like you guys can do no wrong at this point. Yeah, it was fun. It was good. Yeah, it's true. We did that one up at Skywalker, you know, Skywalker Ranch with a big orchestra, and it was so exciting. I got to work with Aaron. We did one album together, and he's just brilliant and lovely. Yeah, and so nice. So nice. Again, we talked about the run that you had with James Taylor. All in all, with Linda, you produced every Linda Ronstadt album released between 1973 and the early 90s. That's some run. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, was, yes, that's true. <laughs> uh, yeah. What about what about the players on Linda's records? Well, I just my, the palette had expanded. We met a lot of great musicians, you know. And the interesting thing, of course, is many of the same players. Well, obviously, Andrew feature. Andrew Gold was unique. To Andrew Linda. Gold was a unique discovery, and you know, good that arrangement was largely his. Right. There were some great singers. Looking back at the liner notes of some of the Linda albums, you know, from the seventies and eighties, just a who's who of singers singing. Don Henley, Dolly Parton, Carla Bonoff, Wendy Waldman, Maria Muldaur, Sissy Houston, Emmy Lou Harris. Yeah. That must yeah. have been fun. It was, it was all fun. And they're all Linda fans. There's certain artists, if you're working with them, Randy Newman is the same thing, where other artists are just such fans. You know, you never meet a girl singer who doesn't idolize Linda. Or and you never meet it, somebody who writes songs who doesn't idolize Randy Newman or Joni Mitchell. Or there's right. certain people where right. you mention their name, do you want to come sing? They go, yes, you know. It's great. But I think it's a testament to you that you worked so long with these artists. You know, you hear nowadays an artist has a hit and then they fire their producer, they fire their manager. There's a bond of trust that you're building up with these iconic artists where it's decades worth of iconic work. Yes. Yeah. I've been lucky in that regard. You be very proud of that. I am proud of it, Yes. Yes, and I've enjoyed working with both of them so much. And, you know, I'd love to work with James again one day. Who knows? Maybe that'll happen. Yeah, well, for all of us, we would love that to happen. James, if you're listening, (laughs) um, you know, not to rest on your laurels, not that you're not busy enough, but I didn't realize that you were one of the original partners in the 70s of opening the Roxy. Yes, I was. So that was you and Lou Adler, who you mentioned earlier, with David Geffen and Elliot Roberts. What was that like, this iconic club in West Hollywood? It was great. Yeah, it was an interesting gang of us. Because the other partner was this guy, Chuck Landis, who was in it because he owned the license or the premises or something, because it was a strip club. It was Chuck Landis's Lago. So it was Chuck Landis and then the rest of us. It was fun. We took it all very seriously, you know. 
getting a good sound system in there and trying to make it really comfortable. And we took our club owner duties seriously. Well, still going strong. I was there a yes. couple of weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, Lou, and of course, Lou still runs it. Yeah. Always son does. So other artists that you produced during this time, uh, some people may not be aware of, Cher, Diana Ross, Neil Diamond, Ringo Starr, Bonnie Raitt, Kenny Loggins, Steve Martin, and you also, you know, as a Broadway head, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that you worked with Steve Martin on Bright Star. Yes, exactly. Which stemmed from the, the Steve Martin, Edie, Edie Brickell records that we did. Right. Right. And, you know, a lot of people may not know that Steve Martin is a, um, you know, genius level banjo player. Yes, he is. Yeah. And also, back to my college radio days in the late 80s, playing the hell out of the 10,000 Maniacs records that you did. Yeah. Those were big records, too. Yeah, no, she's another of my favorite singers. Natalie's wonderful. mentioned your management company where Peter Asher Management, which you founded in the early 70s, you managed James, you managed Linda, but you also worked with Joni. Yes. And Randy Newman. Yes. And Carol King. Yeah. That's a lot. And yes. Pamela Anderson. I'd be remiss if I, I did, didn't mention yes, that. I did. Yes, I did. She's a neighbor in Malibu and she asked me for some help with stuff, so managed her for a couple of years. She's actually on Broadway now. I know. Um, <laughs> I've got to go and see that. I mean, that's so brave of her. Well, you're here in New York, you know. Is she? Is it on now? Yes, she's in Chicago in, in oh, New York. Jesus, I, went, I wonder. Yeah, I don't know how to get hold of her. <laughs> we'll, Wangle some tickets. We'll, we'll figure it out. All right, you. thanks. Also, you know, you have a career as a radio DJ. We were talking about that earlier. Yes. Your show From Me to You on Sirius XM's The Beatles channel. Yeah, it's become sort of a hit. I do like doing it, but it is demanding, as I was saying, because, you know, each week you have to come up with something. Right. You know, people go, well, don't you have researchers and stuff? No, it's me and a piece of paper and a pencil. <laughs> Now what do I play? What more is there to say about the Beatles? And with all that, you're still, when you can, you're on the road touring Peter Asher and Musical Memoir. Yes, I do that a lot. And I'm still loving in the studio, too. I'm halfway through a Susanna Hoffs album now. That's oh, wow. How's that? Exceedingly well. Great. She's another of my favorite singers. Yeah, she's a great singer. She's a great singer. And uh, we started talking about this a while ago, and we're pretty much done. We're mixing now. And I also read that after Gordon passed away, you and... Jeremy from Chad and Jeremy, is that right? Yes. After Chad passed away, actually. Right. Because Gordon died first. But Jeremy and I had done some shows even when Chad just retired. And finally, Chad sadly passed away as well. So we kind of looked at each other and went, Peter and hell? Jeremy. Because it means it's Peter and Jeremy. We get to, I get to sing Double Summer Song and Yesterday's Gone. <laughs> right. And he gets to sing on Well With Our Love and Nobody I Know or whatever. So it's fun. Do you still and, enjoy going on the road? Yes, I do. Very good. Yeah. Well, anything that you'd like to leave us with as kind of final remarks in terms of five, six decades worth of making music that we all love and listen to all the time? No, I mean, um, thank you for doing all such uh, excellent research. I mean, the questions were. We have a team of researchers. No, you we do. don't. No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I still love doing it. You know, I have no intention of stopping. Clearly, I'm 
way past official retirement age, but until I'm either deaf or dead, I intend to carry on. And it's very fortunate that people still do come and see my show and that you know I still get invited to produce records because it's what I love doing the most. Well, you've really had the most fascinating life and career, and you know, you're not slowing down, and we all look forward to seeing what's next and really appreciate you being here. My pleasure. Thank you, Pete. Thank you. Thanks to Peter Asher for joining us this week. Check out his website, peterashermusic.com, for tour dates and more info. You can also catch Peter's radio show, From Me to You, every week on Sirius XM's The Beatles Channel. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganvard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastino, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.